What is it that saves you? Is it education? Is it money? Is it status, like who you know, your social network? I can see some good justification or good reasoning behind any one of these being a saving measure. I mean, education, education is um, credited with minimizing poverty and crime. That sounds like a very saving thing. Money has been helpful when times are hard. You can buy things with it. It can, be, it can do a lot of things, money can. So there are some sticky occasions, I'm certain, that people have been glad they had money to get themselves out of it. Sometimes our social networks could be explained as that which saves us. I mean, who is it that you know, and how close are your friends, and how readily do they come to your aid when you find yourself in a hard place? So I can understand these being little saviors, if you will. But when things really get beyond bad, who is it that saves you? I know for Michael, this summer, it wasn't education or money or friends that saved him when he was in the middle of the lake. He told me this story, of course, prefacing it with, well, obviously I didn't drown. Otherwise, I couldn't have heard the story, and so you kind of know how it turns out. <laughs> but he found himself up by a lake and decided he would go out on a friend's kayak and just go across the lake. The widest it is at its widest place is one mile. Now, those of you familiar with lakes know how close the other side always seems, right? So he thought, I'll just, I'll just kayak over to the other side. It'll feel physically exerting, and it'll be fun. And, and it was a little windy on that narrow lake, um, but no whitecaps or anything. I mean, and there weren't many people out, but, you know, it's manageable. So he set out. He got to what felt like the middle of the lake and noticed that the other side was still not much closer than it seemed when he was back on the other beginning point. And turning around and looking behind him, it seemed further away than it had been. And being type 1 diabetic, he knew that he only had so much exertion in him. So if it goes over the little magic number, then it goes bad really, really fast. So he decided to turn around. And when he turned around, he hit the wave just the right way, so to speak, and capsized the kayak and found himself in the water. So he had to do a quick determination about, now what? The borrowed kayak was upside down, filling with water, and he decided that he would stick the paddle in there so at least it was all together, but he couldn't quite think about trying to drag now the filling kayak back to the starting point of the lake. And he really wasn't dressed to swim anyway. He had forgotten and had left on his shoes. And he has a special little foot support thing in there, which he really didn't have the desire to replace. That would cost money. So he thought, I'm not kicking those things off. That'll cost me some money at the end. And then he also had his Apple Watch on, and he didn't want to ruin that. So... He said, you know, I can apologize to my friend and I can write a check for the kayak. I'm going to go on without it. And he set out to swim back to the starting point of the lake with one arm out of the water. 
it's hard to get very far with one arm out of the water, and there didn't seem to be any help in sight. But finally, and of course, that's how it always feels, finally, a boat showed up, like a real boat that held several people in it. And the guy's first question to Michael was, are you okay? Seeing him with his arm stuck straight out of the water. And he told them, yes, yeah, I'm fine. I just don't want to ruin my Apple Watch. And so the guy pulled him into the boat. And because his boat had some power, they went over to the kayak and somehow hooked it up and drug it back to the starting point at the beginning of the lake. Who is it that saves you? It's our Lord, Jesus, who saves us. We don't talk that way much, I know. But if any of us were in a foxhole, we would find that there were really no other words to say it. It's Jesus the Christ that saves us. And our gospel lessons today remind us of this. Both Peter and Paul remind us that it is Jesus who saves Peter's story is earlier than Paul's experience, but Paul was the first to write it down. So in an essence, you can say they both started it, this proclamation of what Jesus does do in people's lives. Now, a relationship with Jesus is not anything you can take out of the box and plug in and be ready to go. It is indeed a relationship. It's one that has to be nurtured and cultivated over many years like any relationship. But it is something that can be cultivated. It is something that can be nurtured. I have found personally in my own life that there are lots of people ready to help me nurture that relationship. As you might imagine, with anything that anyone's had a profound experience with, they're ready to tell you about it, right? Whether it be the best cookie recipe, or what to do when the sink backs up, or how to handle a troubled kid, or what to do when you're kind of considering uh, healthcare options. If there's someone who has figured out something, or has had a transformational experience, or has found the best thing, they will tell you about it. And if you have one of those things that you're really good at, you're a gardener, or you work with wood, or as my own experience, knitting, if there's someone who says, I'm not sure what to do about, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to answer that question. If it's a knitting question, I can hardly wait. I will make time for you. Let's sit down. What do you have? Maybe you're that way with gardening or woodworking or, or numbers or whatever it might be. You're, you love the invitation with the thing that you love to share it with another person. And Peter and Paul both are infected with that. Their experience their relationship with Jesus has changed their life. And they don't know how else to talk about it but to talk about it. Did you notice in our gospel lesson that Peter demonstrates his faith the minute he steps out on the water? When he steps out of the boat onto the water, he starts to live his faith. Jesus calls him to himself. And Peter, who is human, like we are human, gets distracted by his own fears, and he feels the weight of them, and he, he loses his sense of direction, and begins to sink. 
And Jesus then still saves him. He saved him the minute he stepped out of the boat onto water, and he saved him the minute he started to sink. Jesus was saving him the whole time. Paul also is one who talks about this a little bit differently because Paul followed all of the directions for a good life. He did it all by the book. And still, it fell short. All of those turned out to be little saviors, if you will. And it was like nothing that he'd experienced when he experienced the love of God known in Jesus. So we're not experienced talking about this, and I don't think that we need to beat ourselves up about it. But I do think that we're invited into the dialogue to discover how we find our words. You know, in the spiritual life, there is this two parts to it. There is the action, and there's the contemplation. And they're, they're both parts of a spiritual life. We might find ourselves more comfortable in one thing more than the other. I know there are people here that are really good at the action. I mean, Nutmeg is an example of that. People who took vacation days to make a fair happen that will benefit those in need. There is an example of action. And yet, don't we know that even when we feed all the hungry people, we still can't save them from our own strength? And so we turn to Christ in the contemplative mode and say, well, now what? Now what do you call us to do? The action. Yesterday was a glorious day. And um, I understand a lot of people were praying because the weather looked like it wasn't going to help. People told me that they were praying. And I'm sorry I forgot to join you in that prayer. Um, I forget about the weather. I just remember it when I walk out the door and something happens, whether it rains on me or I'm cold. Um, so I'm getting better at looking at the weather and considering how it might affect what I anticipate for the next day. But I understand a lot of people were praying about the weather this week because you told me that you had been praying about it. And it was a glorious day. But even more than that, it was a spirit-filled day. I got an email last night from someone who came to the festival who said, I've gone to those before, but there seemed to be such a sweet spirit about this day. I hope that it continued throughout the rest of it. What does God do with us when we come aside for a moment and sit in prayer and receive and listen? I think it's such an important thing that I know that I have longed to be better at sitting still and praying. I can forget it because it doesn't, um, it's a movable thing on the to-do list and so I can keep putting it off until the day's done and then, oh golly geez, I'll start tomorrow, tomorrow. And then I wake up in the morning and I'm flooded with the whole list of to-do things and I think I better start on this. I should have gotten up earlier um, on my list of things to do. And so the cycle begins again. But I remember when I was in discernment for where I might do ministry, I spoke a prayer that I believe actually God gave to me, which was, I want to be in a spot that I can't do by myself. I want to lead a congregation, and in that, that it calls me to be a better person, that it calls me to be more fully who you've made me to be, and it calls me into deeper relationship with you. 
And so that was my constant prayer with every church that I visited. And I visited a lot of different churches. And as that prayer grew in me and grew in me, finally God, like a fairy godmother or something, said, I have the perfect place and has brought me here to St. Stephen's. I have most definitely been invited into who God is making me to be in relationship to you. And it calls me more deeply into relationship with God. I'm grateful that God has made my life the vehicle for my own salvation. That God is using the very fabric of my day to call me closer to God's self and closer to those around me. But I still don't get it perfect. There are still times that I forget to pray and when I hear people talk about disciplines of prayer, I realize my inadequacies in it. And so I have to find myself again to make time in this contemplative mode because I'm often so busy with the action. Action and contemplation. It's a dialogue. It's the way in which our conversation with God and our relationship with God grows. Action and contemplation. Action and contemplation. Back and forth. So I want to tell you a story of how this is really real time right now for me. Last summer, probably about this time, uh, it had to have been August, I would guess, I'm not exactly sure, we found ourselves at the disappointing end of a lot of work in searching for an associate rector for youth and family ministries. It was a lot of hard work, and there were a lot of reasons that we were disappointed. I don't know that everyone shared the same reasons of disappointment, but everybody had one. And I found myself exhausted by my own sadness at how it hadn't developed as we had worked so hard for it to come about. I went to my mentor, and she listened to me, and she said, Whitney, it always goes wrong in August. Always. Always, always, always. She said like seven alwayses. And I thought every time she said an always, she was remembering a story. Like her own personal story or someone else's story. Always in the summer. Always, always, always. And I thought, oh my gosh. I thought, well, summer is going to come again. It's next year. What might go wrong then? Because I didn't expect this to go wrong. So I thought if it always goes wrong in the summer... I'm going to put something at the end of summer that makes us remember who we are and whose we are. And so I put on the calendar a revival. I didn't know what else to call it. A three-day thing with a dynamic preacher, really good worship that would help us remember who we are and whose we are. And all I did was put it on the calendar. And then with her help, I was put in touch with a person who's really good at process and, um, and had the you know, experience in ministry to prove it. And so he and I had conversations about what might this year look like and what does visioning mean and all kinds of things like that. And I said to him near the end of October, I said, you know, I have this thing I put on the calendar. It's three days. It's kind of like, I'm, I guess it's like a revival. Um, and I know it's going to cost money, but I don't know how much it's going to cost. And we're in the middle. We're just getting ready to do our budget for next year. And you know what he said to me? I want you to brace yourselves for it. He said, 
Don't worry about it. Don't put any money in the budget for it. The money will come. In essence, what my colleague in ministry was saying is, get out of the boat. So I did. I kind of took you with me. I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you that part. But got out of the boat and thought, okay, as we came into this new year, I needed a good preacher for three days, and good preachers are hard to come by. They're usually pretty well scheduled out into the future. And we were coming into January already, and so August is really a lot closer to January than it might look. And I started to do some work, some action, to say, who are we going to get to be a preacher for this event? And I called people and reached out to people. I reached out to our bishops and I said, I'm looking for a really good preacher for a three-evening worship experience. And Bishop Ian said, oh, this sounds fantastic. I'll give that some thought. And what's your budget? And I said, right. So I went back over to the contemplative part. Oh, golly, what am I going to do? I reached out to some friends, some neighboring churches, and said, I put this thing on the calendar. I'm calling it a revival, but all it does is have dates so far. I'm wondering if anybody here wants to join me in making this happen. Marilyn Anderson from Christ Church Reading immediately got back and said, I'm all in. Let's go. I've got $1,000 to contribute. I said, oh, well, that's good. Now we've got some money toward it. And back and forth I went from action to contemplation and from action to contemplation because after a while, you know, I started to feel like my actions weren't getting anywhere or I felt discouraged by them. And that's when I would remember to come back over to this contemplative place and sit and listen to what God might be telling me. Action and contemplation. And so I was at a conference in March um, a consortium of endowed Episcopal parishes. It's got 700 people that are a part of it and really great energy and good thinking and great networking and idea sharing. And Chris and Karen Fallon went this year. I'm so glad that they did because they have, that's one of their contributions to us as St. Stephen's. They brought back all kinds of knowledge and wisdom from that experience. So when I was there, I started to talk to people about, do you know any good preachers? Because I'm still, I'm still don't have a preacher and it's getting now even closer and I'd pull out my little notebook and jot down names, and people would say things like, oh, gosh, let's see, how might have been already 20 years ago now? And I think, oh, was I in Los Angeles then? You know, like, how am I going to get this person here? And that was 20 years ago, and I can't remember his last name. And so, anyway, I'm still pulling out my notebook, making little notes. And one evening of our um, conference there, we were at the National Cathedral, and I don't know, how many of you have been to the National Cathedral? Okay, so you know it's a humongous space. It's a glorious, humongous space. And we were close to up front, um, having had just even song a little while ago, and we were going to stay the whole evening there. And we were going to have dinner in the cathedral. So at the front part, or right as you enter, they were setting up tables, and the caterers were coming in. You could smell the food. And it was 5.30 already when we were finished with even song. And so that's just about the dinner hour, and so we stood up, and the person at the front said, oh, no, please be seated. We're, we, have a, we have another thing here. You know, we have a speaker that's going to come and talk to us before dinner. Now, these sessions of the speakers always lasted an hour, so I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, it's going to be 6.30. You can smell the food in the back. And my friend and I were good. We're good kids, so we sat back down, and um, the introduction happened. And Bishop Stephen Cottrell 
got up and spoke. And I said to my friend, that's my preacher. And he said, go, go on up there, go talk to him. So I went up there and I got in line to talk to him. When I was about six people back from him, I heard his answer to the person he was talking to, whose question I didn't hear, but I knew what it was by his answer. He said, well, if it works, I'm always happy to come. If it works, it it just is a matter of whether or not it works. So I thought, great. I'll just go tell him how good he was. (laughs) I'm not going to bother asking the same question to the answer I already know. But I went back to my room that night and I decided to reach out to some people that I know. My mentor is someone who has some connections in England where this bishop resides. So I emailed her and I said, do you know anybody that knows Bishop Cottrell? Because somehow I've got to make a connection through this long line of people who are standing here telling him how blessed they were by what he had to say. And she said, Whitney, just write him a letter. Just put it on your own letterhead and send it and ask your bishop for a letter of recommendation or a letter of reference. So in essence, she was saying to me, Whitney, get out of the boat. So I thought, okay. She said, if that doesn't work, call me. I'll see what else I can do. So by Monday morning, which was the first time I was able to, I had my letter finished. And I sent it off to Bishop Ian and said, I really wanted to ask this bishop to come and to speak. I said, I'm wondering if you would like write me a letter of reference. And Bishop Ian said, oh, Stephen, he's a friend of mine. He said, I'll write him, and I'll attach your letter, and then you snail mail your letter. I would love it if he came. I would love it if he could do something for us here in, in our diocese. I said, great. And so he did that. I sent off my letter, and we waited. In a couple weeks' time, I heard back from Bishop Cottrell who said, I would be delighted to come. This was amazing. I learned later as I was talking to some friends at something else that this man is booked up for a year ahead. I was telling one of my friends, I said, yeah, we have Bishop Stephen Cottrell coming to speak at our church for three days at the end of August. He's like, are you kidding me? He said, I tried to get him once and I had to look over a year out. And he's coming this year? And I said, yes. That's one of my friends who lives in Atlanta who's coming up. When I began to explore this and even talk to Bishop Cottrell later about how we were doing the worship and what he had in mind and does this work with what you had in mind and that sort of thing, he said to me, I just feel like this is meant to be. He said, this is the very end of my holiday and I was scheduled right up until that week and I don't have duties in the office until September 1st. So this is just perfect. It feels like it was meant to be. What is God asking us into? I still don't know what's going to happen. I know Bishop Cottrell's coming. I know we have all kinds of people involved to make it happen. We're expecting 200 people a night. I know that we're only $500 short of our over $5,000 budget. I just got an email from the diocese this week that said we'd like to give $2,000 toward this. What happens when we get out of the boat? Even that itself, that simple action of getting out of the boat is the invitation God offers us to come close. Peter couldn't have walked on water if Jesus wasn't already saving him. 
It's a hard and risky thing to do, for sure. But it is what we're invited to do. And sometimes we've got to sit for a minute and get our heart on and our head on and say, okay, okay, I think I can do it now. I think with your help I can do it now. So that we can go over to the action side and trust our lives to the saving work of God. I can't believe what God's done in me just through this experience. I didn't expect all this. And like I said, we're still two weeks out. I have no idea what God's going to do. But I have a feeling God's going to do something. So now I'm in this place of wondering, how do I prepare for whatever God's going to do? I think we beat ourselves up sometimes. Diminish even that which God's already given us to draw us closer to him. When we hear that portion in um, Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? We often say, Oh, yeah, you of little faith. And we admonish ourselves or one another. In this world of where bigger is better, we're sure little faith is probably not as good as a lot of faith. But scholars say that Jesus uses that as an endearing expression in Matthew's gospel. Kind of like in Mexico when they add ito to something to make it little. Samuelito, that's the little Samuel. It's like Jesus is saying, Discipleito, you're a little one. You're a little personito, you're little. Jesus says, you only need to have faith the size of a mustard seed. So he doesn't beat us up that that's all we got. That's all we need. We are being invited into our own salvation through our relationship with Jesus. Jesus will save us through our very lives. We don't even have to go and search for it, Paul says. It's right here. The word is inside you. It's near to your heart. Take a moment. Sit and receive all that God is giving to you. And then go out and try it out. Because as Paul says, you don't have something to say unless you go out there to talk about it to somebody. And that'll go maybe okay. So you come back again and see what you, God is revealing to you again. Action and contemplation. Action and contemplation. What was the conversation like in that boat after Jesus and Peter made it back in? What was there to say? Truly, you are the Son of God. Amen.